This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. I know that it has been a bit too long since last we had a full episode, and I appreciate your patience. Great episodes are on the horizon. March is about to spring upon us, and my early crocuses and snowdrops are blooming. My snowdrops seem to be naturalizing and spreading a bit after I've had some past frustrations with them. Growing things is a great way to learn patience, or at least learn the need for it. Have you considered going to Italy? We still have room on our cultural debris excursions for a single or a couple in May for Assisi and Siena and Genoa. In October, we are also booking for Siena, Bologna, and Genoa. You can choose any combination of weeks. These are very small groups limited to at most six guests. It's seeing Italy in a completely different way than large tour groups. You can email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Cultural Debris, I would ask you to consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. There are different levels of support, and any support level is appreciated. Our poem is by Goethe, Next Year's Spring. The bed of flowers loosens amain, the beauteous snowdrops droop o'er the plain. The crocus opens its glowing bud like emeralds others, others like blood with saucy gestures, primroses flare, and roguish violets hidden with care. And whatsoever there stirs and strives, the spring's contented if works and thrives. Mongst all the blossoms that fairest are, my sweetheart's sweetness is sweetest far. Upon me ever her glances light, my song they waken, my words make bright, an ever open and blooming mind, in sport, unsullied, in earnest, kind. Though roses and lilies by summer are brought, against my sweetheart prevails he naught. It is another year, and that must mean another appearance by my guest Holly Ordway. Holly and I discuss her most recent book, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography from Word on Fire. Holly and I discuss the impact of St. John Henry Newman's oratory on J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien's struggles with faith after the war, and just how consciously did Tolkien seek to share his faith through his literature. Please join me as I talk with Holly Ordway. Holly Ordway, welcome to Cultural Debris. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. You are officially Cultural Debris' most frequent guest. This is your third your third time. Everybody else has just been on once, but you, you're up to three now. I don't know that anybody will ever catch you at this point. Well, I do keep writing books and you keep inviting me, so this is a happy combination. Well, I know. Well, exactly. You keep writing books that I want to talk about. The latest is uh, is this uh, fairly thick volume 
uh, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography, and it's from Word on Fire. It's a very handsomely produced book as well. Um, so there has lots of good things going for it. It even has pictures in it. So, uh, so lots of, lots of fun stuff. That's what we're going to talk about primarily today. Um, how, uh, how has the reception been for the book? Um, very pleasing so far. Um, you know, I knew when I, when I researched and wrote the book that it was filling a gap in that there is no book out there that addresses Tolkien's spiritual life from a biographical perspective. I mean, I knew there was a gap, but what I didn't know is that the readers would be aware that there was a gap and that they would be excited about having it filled. So it's been very pleasing to see this response from quite a diverse range of readers. Oh, very pleasing. Well, that, that gap is actually something I want to talk to you about because it it does seem like Tolkien's faith, per se, um, it, it kind of falls through the cracks. I mean, we... Um, he has, of course, uh, in the popular imagination, a close association with Lewis as, as friends and, and inklings together, colleagues at Oxford. Um, but Lewis, of course, is, uh, is such a high-profile apologist. He's such a high-profile uh, defender of his, uh, of his faith. And uh, Tolkien didn't want to do that. That was something that he was uncomfortable with. And perhaps his um, his literary output has been, what's the what's a nice way of put I don't want to say co-opted. Co-opted seems harsh. But, but it's been adopted by um, the culture at large that, that aren't necessarily interested in Tolkien's faith uh, as a way of informing his, his literary work. Do you think that's fair? Well, it's actually, I think that's not inaccurate, but I think it's only part of the picture because the, the larger picture is really quite complex okay. and almost paradoxical because there are really, in I found two kind of equal and opposite sort of gaps um, in a sense, because on the one hand, there are a lot of people who, who are, well, maybe maybe they're aware that he was a Christian vaguely. It's a thing he was, but it was private and compartmentalized, they think. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with his work. His work is superficially not religious at all. So it's quite natural for people to think this is not relevant. And so we have a lot of people who who, who don't attend to that. And you're right in noting that um, his friend C.S. Lewis, by being so actively evangelistic, kind of by contrast, makes Tolkien seem even you know less outwardly Christian. However, there's also a tendency amongst Christians um, to, to kind of take the opposite approach. And because they know he was a Christian, um, especially amongst Catholics, they know he was a Catholic, there can be a tendency to kind of... Um, want to make that the, the the primary thing about him. And so the religious interpretation of his works becomes sort of the be all and end all. I'm slightly exaggerating, um, but there's a tendency there to see that, you know, because it's religious, you know, his, his religious life is important to him. It is important to his writing. Therefore it becomes the key, the most important thing. And then it can become sometimes frankly, a bit triumphalistic. Like he is our guy and everything he writes right, in sure. you know, the Middle Earth writings is all really well, about Christianity. 
and that's not true either. Kind of those those two extremes are, are not. But he he's the kind of guy you want to be your guy, right? You know, I mean, he's 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 a towering figure, um, and essentially created a genre of fiction that is, you know, in many ways dominant as far as genre fiction goes. Um, and, and so he's sort of the he's sort of the godfather of that. Not that he saw himself as that, and probably would be horrified by that idea, but. Still, he he kind of um, he is the the originator of those things. And so he's the sort of person that I can see a lot of people would want to kind of claim ownership of if that if that makes sense. Exactly. And it's a very natural impulse. Um, And I think kind of both both groups. I want to encourage both groups to be maybe a, a little bit more understanding of the other group. Like we, he is, he's such a capacious writer. He's such a genius. Part of his genius is that both people who are devout Catholics, um, devout Christians of any stripe and people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever, you know, both of them can find a very great deal to love in Tolkien and, and, and both the groups and everybody in between wants him to be their guy. Um, And so the problem that the challenge here with regard to his faith is that this is a very hot button issue for a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's it's obviously a very significant issue personally, culturally. um, And so it becomes a point of conflict where people feel like that either their, their guy is having things projected onto him that are not true from either direction, or they feel that, they're being forced to read him in a certain way that goes against their personal convictions in either direction. And so that's the kind of the, the environment in which mm-hmm. discussions of his faith have a little bit fallen by the wayside in the sense of addressing it biographically, because people have either kind of downplayed it in terms of his work or overplayed it in terms of his work. But there hasn't been any serious attention to, well, what exactly did he believe? And I feel very strongly that any discussion of his faith with regard to his works really has to be informed by context, by biographical context, by cultural context. Um, And so the argument that I put forward in Tolkien's faith is that we just need to understand this. And it's not a question of, of making it the interpretive key as if it was the only thing but we need to see that it was very, very important to him. He himself viewed it as the essential quality of his life and of his imaginative creations, broadly speaking. So I think that in order to properly understand his writings, we need to come to terms with this faith and we just need to understand it. What did it mean to him? And that's what I set out to do in Tolkien's faith. You know, speaking Speaking of Tolkien as the, as the towering figure that he was, and you you know you're talking about the, how this this was a, a gap in in scholarship that you're that you're filling in. Really, his his biography, uh, his life story as a whole seems there seems to be kind of a gap there, right? I mean, we back in our first discussion, uh, I guess probably a couple of years ago now. We were talking about um, about his his library and his reading. Uh, we discussed kind of the the questionable nature of the initial um, biography of him, and uh, but it, as somebody 
who is so studied in many ways. At the same time, there's not really been a lot of biographical work done on on Tolkien. This is really your work here is really, uh, uh, I guess, kind of a, a major salvo in that area that's that's been neglected. It seems to me. Well, that I mean, that's another kind of interesting aspect of of Tolkien scholarship in that surprisingly there is not as much biographical research as one would expect. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that there has been only one authorized biography, and that's Humphrey Carpenter's done quite early on. Um, And, you know, Carpenter had access to uh, all the unpublished papers in a way that has not been given to to later researchers. And so he had, you know, a a privileged position and his biography remains a essential source of a lot of information that we, we simply otherwise wouldn't have access to. But it was written very quickly. Um, it was his Carpenter's first biography. Um, he was a very good writer, very skilled at telling the story, but it's still conditioned by his inexperience, his relatively short time working with the materials, and with certain biases that he brought to the text. And with regards to Tolkien's faith, um, I, you know, I want to be fair to Carpenter. He he does very clearly acknowledge that Tolkien was a devout Catholic and that this faith was really, you know, hugely important to him. He's very clear on that. And that's, that's great. That's really important. However, in terms of setting the stage biographically, I, I don't think Carpenter really understood Tolkien's faith because um, not only was Carpenter not a Catholic. He grew up in the Anglican context. His father was the Anglican Bishop of Oxford, but Carpenter himself had become an atheist, you know, by the time that he was writing his biography. He doesn't have really an access point or a sympathy with Tolkien's experiences. And he said he had to write this book quite quickly. So there's not a lot of context there. Um, And so what I think we've had in terms of the biographical landscape is most people have simply deferred to Carpenter or you know, kind of rehashed him. Um, there's been some important biographical work, um, Diana Glyer in looking at the Incas as a whole and their interaction with each other, a major part on Tolkien there. Um, John Garth, absolutely groundbreaking work on Tolkien's experiences with um, King Edward's school in the Great War and Tolkien in the Great War. Um, and Francis Raymond Edwards does a lot of good work in unpacking Tolkien as an academic um, in, in, his, in his biography, Tolkien. Um, but this is a relatively small number of people doing new biographical research. Um, and there's been articles, you know, here and there. And nobody has really tackled the, the context of Tolkien's faith. And partly, I think, because people have simply not known what the questions were. And this is where I came to realize, as I thought about doing this book, that I really had a unique opportunity from my unique perspective um, I am myself a Catholic, um, which is not, there's not a lot of Catholics in Tolkien scholarship. So I have more knowledge of kind of the background context than, than a lot of scholars do um, through no fault of their own. But also, although I'm an American, um, I spend about a quarter of the year in Oxford every year. And I have done for what, 12, 15 years. And when I'm there, I participate in you know Catholic worship life in the very places that Tolkien worshipped, in that context. So English Catholicism has become a, a really important part of, of my life. Experiences with the um, the Oxford Oratory, which although it wasn't 
there in Tolkien's day, the Oxford Oratory is, was founded by the Birmingham Oratory, which is where you know, Tolkien grew up. And, you know, the Oratory has the same ethos, you know, wherever it goes. And I realized that as this sort of immersion, this participation in English Catholic culture, and specifically in Oxford English Catholic culture, and specifically the Oratorian influence in Catholic culture, all brought me in contact with an aspect of Tolkien's life that simply had not been even touched on because people didn't know it was there. Um, and I, I remember a key moment in this was, you know, years before, a few years before I started working on Tolkien's faith, I had, you know, gone to the oratory for mass and I come out of it. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, you know, the oratorian approach to, to worship is really Tolkienian. And then I had a double take and I realized that chronologically it's the other way around, that what I had observed was that there's an aspect of Tolkien's own spirituality and aesthetics that is deeply oratorian. And that's really interesting because how many Americans, at least, you know, how many people in general even know who the oratorians are, you know, much less what their spirituality is, what their culture is. Yeah, we have, there, there's an oratory in Cincinnati that I've visited some, but it's, um, you know, it's not widespread, certainly. And um, it's, I guess, a, a little bit of, a, 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 speaking of English Catholicism, itself quite sort of a niche area, right? Um, especially at the time uh, of Tolkien, but but the or the oratory itself ev even more niche uh, as far as um, as far as that atmosphere and that approach uh, would go. So that that certainly would bring a unique uh, a unique perspective, I think, and 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 would be necessary to understand where Tolkien's coming from because he was really formed in that. Yeah, and that was one of the, the really fascinating discoveries, you know, because this is a, you know, void, any any good book to research is a void of discovery for, for the researcher. You know, I went into this knowing certain things about Tolkien, but wanting to, to learn more, you know, that's, that's part of this. I'm not just rehashing things I already knew. So I knew he, he had been formed by the oratory and I knew more about the oratory, you know, than the average person. I knew that it was a whole community. It wasn't just Father Francis. There was a whole community of fathers. Um, but then finding out more about oratory and spirituality and seeing how deeply it shaped Tolkien's whole attitude, because he's, he's steeped in it at a formative period of his life, and he keeps up contact with it throughout his life. And that was another interesting thing that I learned in my research. You know, he, not just Father Francis, who became a second father to him, you know, through, his, through all of Father Francis's life, but, but also, you know, other oratorian fathers that he kept in touch with. And then, of course, the this sort of background influence of Newman on Tolkien right. through the oratory. All of this really helped to unlock certain insights into Tolkien's work that I think this is really important because too much of looking at sort of religious influence in Tolkien's work has been stuck on the surface you know, looking at, well, where, you know, is Galadriel, you know, a Marian figure? Is Frodo a Christ figure? Well, you can talk about that. And that, that's interesting, but it gets stuck on the surface in terms of trying to find analogs and parallels and things like that. And sometimes they're there, not as often as people sometimes tend to think. <laughs> There's a reason why mm -hmm. he said this is not an allegory. Um, but what I found was much more interesting and I think more important 
is the underlying thematic and spiritual and conceptual, you know, really deeply formational things like how important the concept of humility was for Tolkien. And, and he developed that very much in the context of oratory and spirituality in which humor, including self-deprecation and silliness, is tied to humility as a profound aspect of the Christian life. I mean, how how many religious orders do you know of that that think that that hold that being silly is a path to holiness? Well, it <laughs> was the case for Philip Neri and the Oratorians, and that really helps to unlock a lot of Tolkien's attitudes and his behavior and the values we see in figures like the Hobbits. And this isn't about a one-to-one correspondence. It's about kind of seeing the deep roots that that yield this quite naturally. And I think that helps us to understand better what he says in that famous and often misunderstood quote that the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Well, fundamentally is really a key phrase, you know, at the fundaments, at the roots, in things like the value he placed on humility and humor. That, that's part of what it means for him individually in his context, the English Catholic context that he grew up in that's so different from American Catholicism, for instance. And that helps us to unlock so much about his work. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I think that you're bringing out a very important thing that um, I guess some of the, the triumphalistic approaches that you were talking about earlier are not really getting to the 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 fundamental level to bring that back in the fundamental level in which his work is being uh is being informed rather than necessarily uh expressed in a in an allegorical way we all know that tolkien did denounced the idea of allegory we always want to bring it in um and, you know, it's hard not to, to some degree, but at the same time, there's a, it's really something that's, that's growing out of the very soil of, of Tolkien's mind and, and I guess mental culture of, of his understanding of the world and the way the universe works is how, is how he's putting it together. It's not some sort of one-to-one correspondence to something. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of frees us to explore it more fruitfully. Um, it's it's not just a reading posed onto it. Right. Let, let's let's take a step back then, because we've talked about the oratory. We've talked about Newman a little bit. Um, I want I want to move back into that so that we can um, maybe set a little bit more context, because I know some of the listeners will be familiar with both Newman and the oratory to some degree, but some may not. Um, and Newman, John, uh, now St. John Henry Newman, Cardinal uh, Newman, and Tolkien are probably the most prominent uh, English Catholics, certainly the past two centuries, I, I would think. I don't know who would surpass them. Obviously, there have been other uh, important English Catholics, but I don't know anyone whose names loom larger than theirs um, as far as being identified. And, and, then we we recognize that there was this very close connection, not direct, not in the sense that they were themselves together, but there was this sort of looming shadow of Newman 
over the the formation of uh, of Tolkien as a young man and and growing up, and really that lasted through the influence of those who influenced Tolkien for for years to for years to come. So, briefly, tell us what the Birmingham Oratory is and how Newman or not Newman, but how Tolkien got there. Right. Okay. I will, I will try to be concise. Um, <laughs> as concise as you can be. We yeah. have time, but. <laughs> yes. Um, so stepping back, you know, John Henry Newman was one of the, was one of the key members of the movement in the church of England called the Oxford movement. Um, right. He was actually ordained as a priest in the church of England um, and his conversion to Catholicism was a huge deal um, in, you know, the, uh, the 19th century. It was, it was major headline news. Um, and then he, he became a Catholic. He went to Rome. He was ordained as a priest along with um, some of his friends and decided to establish a, a religious community in England. And he chose for his community the Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri, um, Philip Neri being an Italian priest of the, um, of the 16th century who had established this approach to religious life um, that was slightly less structured, um, a little less formal than, you know, communities like the Dominicans or the, or the Benedictines or whatnot. Um, so oratorians don't take vows to their house. This is a voluntary commitment. Um, they don't take vows of po- poverty either. For instance, they, so they retain their own, their own funds if they have them. Um, and they have a great emphasis on the arts, especially in music. Um, and they have a particular emphasis on outreach to the more educated parts of the community. You know, there are, there are, um, many religious orders that, you know, focus, for instance, on serving the poor. Um, and the oratorians focus on, you know, basically converting the educated and on education. Um, and so that's the community that, that, um, Newman chose and he brought it to, to England, founded the, um, Birmingham Oratory in the 1850s, settled there and spent the rest of his long life as their, as their superior. Um, he was made cardinal during that time. Um, and then he, he died in, um, 1890, if I'm getting my date right. So that's the context. Um, And so we have the Birmingham Oratory is profoundly shaped by Newman's vision. It was his oratory. Um, And even when he died, that that influence stayed. I mean, his to this day, his study is kept exactly as it was when he was there. Um, I had the privilege of a a tour of that um, when I when I gave my book launch of Tolkien's faith at the oratory this, uh, this fall. It's exactly as, as he left it down to the books, you know, on his, on his desk. Um, and they call they still call him our Cardinal. Um, so that's the context very much formed by Newman, by his approach to the intellectual life, by his approach to the arts, which he put a huge emphasis on. Um, so then now we turn to the Tolkien's, um, Tolkien was actually baptized in, in the church of England. His parents, Arthur and Mabel were Anglicans. Um, Arthur died. Mabel brought the boys to, to England because they had been in South Africa. Um, and at some point during those years, she became drawn to the Catholic Church. And the question of why did Mabel convert is one of those sort of questions that bounces around Tolkien scholarship. We don't know the actual specific details unless we saw more of her papers, which, which we haven't. Um, but one of the things I tracked down is that she was received, um, she received instruction at a church called St. Anne's Alchester Street, which turns out to have been the first church that Newman's Oratorians founded when they came to Birmingham. It was their mission church. Um, and then they founded the oratory itself. 
And so it still had a legacy of addressing Anglican difficulties. Um, and Mabel had already been interested in high church, Oxford movement, Anglicanism. So I, th- I think that the pointers are all there, that it was Newman's approach that drew her into the Catholic church, or at least got her interested in talking to the, to the, to the priests at St. Anne's. Um, so then she eventually takes the boys to become parishioners at um, the Birmingham Oratory. And again, looking at the at the actual cultural context was fascinating because today the Birmingham Oratory is a really impressive, gorgeous building, it's classical style basilica. But in 1902, when Mabel brought the boys there, it wasn't. It was a shabby, rundown, you know, repurposed factory building. Um, it was just boring and kind of ugly. Why did she choose that when she could, for instance, have gone to St. Chad's Cathedral, gorgeous Catholic? you know, parish there. I think, again, it was the oratorian approach. They were very supportive of convert women in particular. Mabel made a really savvy choice about where she was going to raise her orphan boys. So that's the context. They're, they're getting also a formation that from the beginning understands the journey that they've taken, that they were in the Church of England. Now they're Catholics. The oratorian fathers understood that was a, was a big step. Um, they understood Protestants. They weren't afraid of them. Um, And this becomes a factor, for instance, in the way that Tolkien is allowed to go to um, King Edward School, which was a Protestant day school. That's an unusual choice for Catholics of that era when there was a a lot of quite warranted caution about allowing Catholic boys to go to a Protestant school because they they might sort of get arm twisted into, you know, leaving the Catholic faith. But the Oratorians and, and Mabel we're comfortable with that has a lot to do with that, that ethos. So then Mabel dies. She leaves um, her boys in the guardianship of father Francis Morgan, who's a priest of the oratory and it's under his guardianship that they, they grow up and he becomes a second father to them. Um, and to, to Tolkien really express that in particular. So where's the Newman connection? Um, here we come back to the fact that it's not all that long since Newman has died. Father Francis Morgan himself had been one of Newman's students at the oratory school, and he had been um, Newman's final personal secretary, trusted by him, you know, to to deal with his administrative work. And many of the other fathers knew him personally, had worked with him closely. So he had this firsthand connection with the people who knew Newman best and were most motivated to carry on his legacy. And so naturally, I think there is a very Newmanian influence on, on Tolkien's um, early life. And I think we can see that trace through his adult life as well. You know, later on as a, as a professor in Oxford, he he's involved with the Newman Society. And a little later on, he's involved with the National Newman Association, um, you know, which was about sort of Newman's vision for Catholic higher education. So we see that, that, that Newmanian thread throughout kind of his whole life. About how long are we talking about of a gap between Newman and Tolkien arriving? Was it 15 years, something along those lines? Is that about right? Um, let's see. Um, if Newman died in 1890, is that is that correct? Um, I think I, would... I think that's right. Yeah, it's it's that. Cir- it's we'll right. say circa 1890, yes, I, I, but I think that's right. Yes, I think that's the date, but uh, um, it, it escaped me off the top of my head. Um, and then um, Mabel 
converts in 1900 and brings the boys um, to the oratory a couple of, of years later. So it's not a big gap in, you know, in between, between them, you know, a, a dozen years, basically. So, I mean, so the, the, he's still looming large there. Um, what, um, I guess the, the staff is still there. Um, and that ethos is really, is really what raises, uh, Tolkien, I guess. I mean, he's he's literally formed in that, right? Yes, and that's and that's why it's it's so important to note this because it's not simply a question of did he read a particular book by Newman. Um, I haven't been able to track down what specific books that he might have read. I'm sure he he must have. Um, But in a sense, we we, that would be useful to know, but not necessary to assess that you that he had. This, this influence because he's he's raised in literally raised in an environment that is shaped by Newman in, in you know intellectually culturally spiritually he's got the stamp of his of his massive intellect his great genius stamped on the on the Birmingham Oratory um, influencing all of all of what they're doing all of what they're teaching um, and encouraging them in the intellectual life and that I think is one of the ways in which we see an influence on on Tolkien because here he is you know he's this orphan boy with no money um and the fact that he then goes to oxford and becomes you know a world famous philologist much less a world famous art author that if we actually look at his his very difficult early years no by no means a bygone conclusion a foregone conclusion because you know it, it took a certain vision for father francis to see here is a young man who's really going to benefit from this education we need to help him get there. Uh, and that included helping him, you know, navigate the difficulties of adolescence and falling in love, <laughs> um, keeping focused in his studies, never an easy thing for Tolkien. And and Father Francis ended up, you know, he couldn't afford to pay for all of Tolkien's um, education, but he paid for quite a lot of it out of his own pocket. Mm. Um, and that's really an extraordinary thing to do. And again, I think all of this has a lot to do with the fact that the oratorian ethos values the intellectual life. And so they saw potential in Tolkien, not just Father Francis, but others of, of the oratorian fathers helped to mentor him and, and saw this intellect as a thing to be encouraged. I, I think you make a good point there talking about, um, talking about the influence of Newman not being necessarily directly through books. And like you said, I, I can't imagine that Tolkien wasn't at least somewhat well-read in Newman. Um, but it, it was, it was just the atmosphere around him. It was the very, it was just the the intellectual air he was breathing that it, it wasn't something conscious. It was just inescapable around him as how that is how he would have just sort of absorbed all of that. Yeah. And actually, just in terms of his books, I think one of the sort of practical reasons why we, we don't necessarily see um, Newman's books amongst, you know, the, the ones that we know that were in his library was because he spent his, you know, his his youth and, and teenage years in, you know, in the Birmingham Oratory, where there's a massive great library, which would have had Newman's books there. He didn't need to have them in his own collection. He could go and pull them off of the shelves in the in the oratory library um, anytime, anytime right. he liked. Right. I mean, he w- it would have just been it would have just been around him all the all the time. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. 
fast forwarding a little bit out of Birmingham, we have um, we have, of course, Tolkien going to the war. And um, you mentioned earlier, there's there's been um, more biographical work done on Tolkien and and his relationship to the war in recent years. One of the things that struck me, though, um, was after the war, you write about how Tolkien or Tolkien, I guess you quote Tolkien as saying that he had um, he had essentially quit practicing his practicing his faith or ceased practicing his faith for a period of time. And that was to some degree, perhaps connected to being away from the practice of it during the war. How did what insights do we have about that, about him stepping away from his faith? And how did he how did he come back to it? Yeah, this is a, a great, a great topic. Um, and so Tolkien himself says in a letter to one of his sons, he says that for a stretch, um, you know, from Leeds to a point in Oxford, he says, I almost ceased to practice my religion. Now that almost is important because he never does step away from it entirely, but it's, it's still a pretty significant statement. Um, and once you get to know Tolkien, you realize that he can be very hyperbolic, very exaggerated in his language, but he's usually most exaggerated when he is actually not that emotionally invested in something. He can bluster a lot about, you know, kind of laying a smoke screen for, oh, no, I don't use allegory ever, but he does sometimes. But it turns out, and this is something I discovered in my research for Tolkien's modern reading, that when he's speaking of something that's the most important to him, he typically understates rather than overstates. And so that very simple and matter of fact statement of, I almost ceased to practice my religion and his, his statements about how kind of sad he was that he didn't live up to the love of God. I think that's, it's, it indicates that there was really a very, very difficult stretch that he went through um, in which his faith became dry and in some way, and he wasn't fully practicing it. What did it mean that he wasn't fully practicing? We don't know those details. Probably, probably it meant he wasn't going regularly to Sunday mass wasn't going to confession, um, maybe, probably wasn't practicing his prayer life as before, things along those lines. Again, we don't know exactly. So the question is, where did this come from? And the context of this is in the years right after the Great War. And this is really fascinating spiritually, because if we look at his experiences in the war, he actually sustains quite an active faith through his war experience, um, even though it's an experience that is actually quite devastating to the faith of, of many of his contemporaries. And some of my research for this involved looking at contemporary assessments of the experience. There's a fascinating pair of studies that was published in 1919, the, the year after the armistice. Um, one volume was published by the chaplains of the Church of England, assessing how did members of the Church of England do in the war if they were soldiers, the other was published by Catholic chaplains looking at how did Catholic soldiers get through the war. And so I had firsthand contemporary data, not just projecting back on it, but firsthand accounts from Church of England and from the Catholic Church about what was it like for soldiers in those, in those you know, Christian communities. Um, and that was very illuminating. And I talk more about this in, uh, in the relevant chapter in, in Tolkien's Faith. But the upshot is that as a Catholic soldier, um, Tolkien um, had the opportunity to participate in sacraments 
to a certain extent. The, the chaplains brought the sacraments to the soldiers in the trenches, and, and for instance, but the overall experience was completely fragmented and and you know no sense of structure. You know that the the church absolved the requirement for um, going to confession before receiving communion. That's a huge deal. They could get just general absolution. Um, the church absolved the requirement, sorry, dispensed the requirement um, for soldiers to um, meet the Sunday obligation, because if you're in the trenches, you can't necessarily get <laughs> to, uh, to any sort of service. So there's definitely a loosening of structures and a reliance on just individual initiative. And Tolkien takes that initiative. I mean, he keeps a, he gets a little diary. He marks when he's able to get communion or go to confession. He has a, a rich prayer life during this time. Um, he writes a poem um, entitled Consolatrix Afflictorum, which is one of the, the titles of, of Mary in the Litany of Loretto. There's there's lots of evidence that he, he sustained his faith life through the war. Yet it's after the war, when he's reunited with his wife and they have a young family, that's when things get rocky for him. And this to me is just psychologically interesting. And it is not an area that I think has really been properly explored. Mm -hmm. So treading cautiously, of course, I advance sort of two, two thoughts on this. Um, and one of them is that I think we need to take account of the, of the emotional and psychological difficulties of demobilization to go from being a soldier to being um, an ordinary civilian again, mm -hmm. especially since Tolkien, um, his time in the trenches was relatively short. Um, what, what took him out was trench fever, but the trench fever was a, a very, you know, unknown disease, no treatment, no cure at that time. And he had a very, very bad case of it. Um, he lost at one point um, close to 30 pounds of his body weight. And he was never a very, you know, hefty man. So he must have been down to skin and bones. Um, he was he was declared 100% disabled by the war ministry at a time when they were patching up people with plastic surgery and whatnot to get them back on the front lines. He was an officer. He he had valuable skills as a signals officer. The fact that they declared him 100% disabled and didn't send him back really speaks to how sick he was. And trench fever, actually, as I learned in my research, if it's not, if it if it lasts beyond a couple of weeks, it becomes chronic. And so very probably his extensive health issues for the rest of his life, and his letters are full of him complaining about how he's not well. Well, I, I don't think he's a hypochondriac. I think he's actually suffers from these chronic, he really was sick a lot of the time. Um, so, so he's got a lot to deal with as a, as a demobilized soldier, just psychologically, emotionally, this is very difficult. Not all that surprising that he would have difficulties with his faith. But also there's a very perceptive comment from one of the Catholic chaplains in this, this 1919 book, which actually said, the chaplain said, you know, a lot of our devout men, you know, they, they continue their faith you know, practicing during the war as they did before the war, this is all good. But this chaplain said, I wonder if because there has been no structure during the war, are they going to have a hard time getting back into the rhythm of, of regular Catholic life after the war? And I think, I, I actually think that's probably something of what Tolkien experienced, that during this time, his, his patterns, his habits had been so disarrayed that he just had a hard time coming to grips with it. And so he kind of shifts into a, a, a not not fully practicing kind of faith. He, he's he's in a dry spell um, and that characterizes quite quite a stretch. We, we don't know exactly how long. It might have been just a couple of years. 
it's possible it was as long as 10 years, um, but it was a significant stretch. Um, and I, I think it had a, a deep influence on Tolkien. You look at some of his letters later in life when he's writing to his, his adult children, and you find that he's quite clear about the role of the will, that even if you don't have pious feelings, you can still love God, you can still you know, be faithful. He's, he's very clear about, you know, it's not all about just how you feel. Um, it's what you do and what you know to be true. And I think that has its roots in him making it through this, this dry stretch. Yeah, that would make sense. And, you know, and this, of course, is, I guess, early career stage, early family stage, a lot of new responsibilities that he's not really experienced before. And I can see where that would would be unsettling, I guess, to to uh, to somebody returning from from the situation he was in. Um, I did want to touch on uh, to your um, your discussion of his his sort of uh, breakout moment in his career when he gives his lecture on Beowulf and uh, and the connection um, of that to sort of this idea. I guess one his approach to um, to literature itself, which his approach to Beowulf was somewhat groundbreaking in that it was, I mean, it seems obvious to us, but he's actually looking at the poem and the and the, and the, the relevance of it uh, as a poem. But also, um, you talk about the the idea that that Tolkien uh, held of the idea of the true myth that he's that he. Uh, the lens through which he viewed Christianity and of course certainly carries into conceptually into his writing of, of the middle earth uh, works. Yeah. Well, I think you see in, in this, the sense that uh, you can't say it's just a story for Tolkien. That would have been, you know, a terrible thing to say. Um, and right, it has sure. to do with also his understanding of what the word myth means. Because um, myth to us today tends to mean, you know, something that's, you know, f- just simply false. You know, five myths about, you know, your investments or five myths about whatever. <laughs> no, it, a myth, it, literarily. Yeah, exactly. A list of things that you shouldn't believe. Um, but for in Tolkien's and, and his friend Lewis's um, understanding, and, and Tolkien's understanding first, it's Tolkien who, who convinces Lewis of this, even though Lewis is the one who popularizes the idea more more fully. Um, Tolkien's understanding of myth is that it's it's a story that conveys truth. Um, so in his articulation, Christianity is a myth in that it's a meaningful story um, that is also true. Um, as he says in his his essay on fairy story, you know, this is um, this is the the um, a myth that also existed in history. Um, so this is something that has all the mythic resonance of a story, but is also something that happened. It's, it's historical. So, um, myth and history in this case, he believes are, are identical. Um, but what he's trying to convey with this is the fact that there are aspects of this reality that he experiences, that he holds to be true, that can only be conveyed imaginatively, narratively, um, it, it can't just be summed up in a doctrine. You can use doctrine to talk about them, but the experience is what you get through the whole mythic story of Christianity. Um, and that's what he 
he endeavors to, you know, to convey to his his new friend C.S. Lewis, who was first, you know, an atheist and then a sort of a general theist, but not a Christian. He's trying to convey that that concept. And I think again, this helps us to understand this complex relationship of his imaginative writings um, and his academic writing, for that matter, to Christianity, because you know, his stories can convey something true about the world without being didactic. Um, and we also have to remember that for Tolkien as a Catholic, Catholicism is all-encompassing. So his faith encompasses all, all of reality. There is not a compartment that's Catholic understanding and, a, and then the rest is something else. So for you know, Tolkien's understanding of virtue, of good and evil, um, you know, e even his understanding of, of the happy ending, as he talks about in, in On Fairy Stories, all of this is part of those foundational elements that his faith establishes in his, in his imagination, out of which his stories blossom, which may not have any direct outward connection to Catholicism, but they're, they're grounded in it. Even just in the most fundamental layer that Tolkien felt that stories could convey meaningful ideas, that they could be, be ways to communicate the truth in some way. What was Tolkien's own feelings about, um, I mean, as obviously as, as an author of, of the, the Middle Earth stories, did he uh, and and understanding them as as Catholic works, and we you know we talked we touched on sort of the way in which they are, but did he view himself, um, I guess as um, as someone who was conveying Catholicism to a wider audience? I know it was very different than what Lewis was doing, who he was doing apologetics per se, which. Tolkien did not want to do, uh, but did was Tolkien conscious of conveying faith more broadly through his writings? Was that something he wanted to do? Ah, uh, yes and no, no and yes. <laughs> um, this is what you happen. Ask, ask the elves for advice, right? Also, when you ask me you know, that this difficult question, um, because there's there's different aspects of this. Um, and I think this gets to some of the challenge of talking about Tolkien's faith and why it's so important that we approach it carefully and thoughtfully. Um, did he set out to write his stories so that he could convey truths about Christianity, about Catholicism? No, no, he did not. He was quite clear on this. Um, he set out to tell a story um, he set out to tell an exciting story, and it unfolds as it as the story unfolds. Um, he certainly did not ever sit down and say, "I want to convey this doctrine," or "I want to convince people." It was absolutely foreign to his way of thought. It wasn't how his mind operated. It wasn't what he wanted to do or tried to do. Um, hopefully, I've been sufficiently emphatic on that point. <laughs> yes. um, having said that, good. Um, Having said that, he's also quite clear in various things that he says um, that he did convey things that he felt to be true about the faith in his writings, and that these at times became important themes. For instance, he talks about the way that the Lord of the Rings is um, about 
you know, to paraphrase, it's about who has ultimate power, you know, divine power. Does God have divine power or are you trying to seize divine power by means of, of the ring, by the machine, as he put it? Um, uh, or alternately, he, 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 there's no like one set theme because he says it's all about this and he says different things at different times. It's a complex book. He says it's all about death and the desire for deathlessness. And that is a fundamentally Christian thing to grapple with. What does it mean? What does death mean? Um, and he's aware that there are theological elements. Um, I mean, the, the sort of a case study is that in the letters, he talks about how um, the experience of Frodo at Mount Doom, where he he finally is there, he, he has the ring, he's at the at the cracks of doom, and he doesn't throw it in. He, he says, I will not do this thing. Um, I refuse to do it. And it ends up being providentially fulfilled by Gollum seizing it and falling into the cracks of doom. And Tolkien says... In his own words, that this is actually an outworking of, of the last part of the Lord's Prayer. You know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is the last part in the in the Catholic rendering of it. Um, now, you would never know this from reading Lord of the Rings. Um, it's not, it, it's a natural, that, that scene is in terms of the narrative, the theme, the characters. It's a natural unfolding of everything Tolkien has written up until that point. Um, it was not arbitrary it's not shoved on there he didn't say well how shall i end it to to do this but also because this is a very important part of his prayer life it's something he's thought about a great deal it's an important theological issue wrestling with temptation and at what point does the will break and and where's providence come in all of these things bubble up again very naturally and intuitively and 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 shape and inform that scene so then if you if you now know that, you can see those resonances and Tolkien intended them to be there, not forced onto it, but as as part of it intrinsically unfolding. And he chose to let it be like you can see it or not as you like. That was the way he that was the way he worked. Um, but he thought enough of it to explain it to a reader in a letter. So, you know, he wasn't hiding it in that sense. So all of this is to say that he didn't have as his primary intention to express truths about Christianity, but because he felt these things genuinely to be true, they weren't just textbook things. He actually believed these things. He allows them and is, is I think happy to see them unfold in his work. And when he has the opportunity to, to bring them out a little more fully, he, he does so. So in that sense, Yes, he is allowing it to come forward in his work, but no, he's not setting out to do it intentionally and, and didactically. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, again, I know that he he was sort of strident in his um, his refusal to to embrace what Lewis embraced, uh, which uh, w- was a reflection of their own understanding of their faith, too, I think, which we don't necessarily have have to pursue in this discussion but um one of the things that also kind of stuck uh, stuck out to me was uh, was your discussion of Tolkien's own understanding of his relationship with the community of saints um and the work of angels and how that factors into his conception of middle earth and and the the characterizations that he uses there. Well, I mean, in a, in a sort of simple 
summing up, I mean, Tolkien was a practicing Catholic, mm-hmm. and so he believed that you know, men and women who had died in friendship with God and had gone through the purifying stage of purgatory were in the presence of God and and could be responsive, you know, to pray on our behalf to God um, and could be our, our spiritual friends and, and our and our mentors in the, in the spiritual life. And he had particular saints whom he had a, a connection to, St. John the Evangelist, um, St. Bernadette, interestingly, uh, the little the little um, girl who who saw visions of, uh, of Our Lady at Lourdes. Um, and he understood angels as not the, he's quite clear on this in the letters, not as these like quaint little cherubs with little cute angel wings, but as, you know, um, divine intelligences of, you know, um, in one way he puts it kind of as, as God's attention kind of focused on us. Uh, there's, they're, they're involved in the spiritual world, but in a, that's what I want. Um, he doesn't anthropomorphize them, I guess, is is the way I would put it, which is quite interesting. It's worth reading those bits in the letters where he talks about guardian angels, um, and it's it's quite a quite a robust understanding of them. Um, not not a nice little plump lady with swan wings, as he puts it. So, and this is interesting in in terms of understanding something that has caused a lot of confusion and quite understandably amongst um, readers of Tolkien's works, because in especially in the Silmarillion, we have mention of the Valar and they're called gods, you know, lower G gods. And this brings up the question of, well, is, is Tolkien presenting a, a pantheon, sorry, a polytheistic world? Um, no, he's not. Um, and we know that in large part because he, he says so. But granted, authorial intention is complex just because he says he's not doing it doesn't mean that he's right. absolutely not. But in any case, um, he's very clear that in his imagined world, um, there is one God, same as ours. It is the same God. Erulubatar is God. He says it is the God, the one God. Um, so how do we account for the way that um, there are these references to lower G gods in the Silmarillion? Well, the same way that there's references to lower G gods in the Bible. You know, you will you will become known as children of God. You know, you will become gods. Lower G gods, meaning, you know, part of that, you know, divine family, as it were. And specifically, Tolkien says, and I quote this in Tolkien's faith, that that his conception of the Valar are that they are angelic beings. Um, they they are they're angels in terms of of his Catholic cosmology. The fact that the people of Middle Earth call them gods or, or refer to them as gods, that's a linguistic usage it's not so much a theological one it's natural that the people of middle earth would call them lower g gods the way that the pagan peoples of of earth thought of you know different gods but in this case in his in his legendarium these gods are actually angels and archangels um and we can see that in the way that um that the um the origin the, the genesis story in the Cimmerian shows them right um, and i think that's quite helpful in understanding what Tolkien's trying to do. In a sense, he's deliberately muddying the waters by calling them gods. And I think it's deliberate. I think he's trying not to make it just like, oh, look, this is the Christian cosmology. He's trying to to have a fresh avenue to it. He's trying to see it the way the inhabitants of Middle Earth would see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he chooses this way to to express it. But his conception of them, as he articulates, his conception of them is as angelic figures, and that I think helps us to understand what he's doing with them theologically. 
Very good. Well, much to explore. Of course, we we have scratched the surface of of your um, of your mighty book here. Um, after after producing such a, such a volume, I hate to ask the next next question, but I'm going to anyway. What are you? Uh, what's next on your agenda, Holly? That you're working on. <laughs> well, for the moment, I, I mean, immediately I'm, I'm working on um, doing a lot of lecturing um, about the book. Um, and I've got a few, you know, new new lectures coming out, um, some new research um, on this area. Uh, so that, you know, continuing with that, to be sure. Um, but I also have in mind as a longer term project, not the next couple of years. It's been quite a busy stretch. I need to not write a book for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested in exploring yeah, seriously. I'm very interested in exploring Tolkien as a poet um, and looking at his his early decades professionally um, in Leeds in particular and his early decades in, in Oxford, um, because originally he conceives of himself literarily as, as a poet, not as a writer of prose. Um, and, and because he becomes so massively successful and, and, and gifted at writing prose, I think his his poetic vision, his poetic aspirations have, have not received as much attention um, as they might have done. And his years in Leeds are somewhat overshadowed by his his many decades in Oxford. Um, and so I'm just interested. So some years ahead, lots of research, you know, some more research travels and time spent in well, archives I, and, and all that. But that's that's what I have in mind. I will pencil you in for a future interview on... Uh... On cultural debris when that uh, when that time comes i i appreciate you being on uh again with me today and um behind the scenes folks i hope are not quite aware that we we had some technical difficulties and i appreciate your patience with those but holly ordway thank you for being on cultural debris and uh recommend people pick up your new book tolkien's faith from word on fire uh and uh and it uh, elucidates a, an entirely uh, new area of Tolkien in a lot of ways that uh, that really hasn't been explored before now. So, uh, so recommend people uh, people pursue that. Well, it was a pleasure to be on, as always. Thanks a lot, Holly. <laughs>